I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. So there is a humanitarian crisis happening in Afghanistan. The economy is on the brink of collapse, and millions are on the verge of starvation. And the country's just been dealt another blow, with the U.S. deciding to give half of the Afghan Central Bank's assets to the families of the victims of 9-11. And on the ground, people are really suffering, like Masood Ahmad. It's winter right now in Kabul, and he's standing outside the restaurant he works at, yelling out the lunch specials to people as they're walking by. He's wearing jeans and a sweater over a couple of other layers, trying to stay warm. Masood and his wife have five children to feed, and they've been struggling. He says everything is so expensive, and there is no work. My daily income is 200 Afghanis, equal to 2 US dollar. Now you can imagine that how should I buy food and other family need? Our future is also destroyed. Last night at dinner, Masood says they had no food on the table. Our cooking oil was finished. We just eat bread with tea. What should I do with 200 Afghanis? Buy food, medicine, or other necessity? It's now been six months since the U.S. pulled its troops out of Afghanistan, the Western-backed government collapsed, and the Taliban took over. More than half of the country's estimated population of 40 million faces extreme levels of hunger. The World Food Program says 98% of Afghans aren't consuming enough food. And experts blame two things. American sanctions on the Taliban and the U.S. refusing to unfreeze assets that belonged to the Afghan Central Bank, that many say belong to the Afghan people. And last week, the announcement of half of those assets going to the families of the victims of 9-11, it left Afghans stunned and furious. On this episode, we're going to take you to Afghanistan to connect the dots between those policies and the Afghans who are paying the price. The day Kabul fell to the Taliban this past August, the streets were filled with panic. The president had fled the country, and the Taliban were sitting at his desk, 
People were running. Traffic was gridlocked. The airport was in a state of chaos as Afghans scrambled to get out. In the midst of all of that, Abedullah Bahir went on TV to tell the world what he was seeing. I was live uh, on BBC when Kabul fell uh, right after the Taliban announced that they were, had taken over Kabul. My comments were that nothing had changed other than the walls coming down. There was no us and them anymore. There was just Afghans within Afghanistan and we had to figure out how to move forward. Abedullah was born in Afghanistan, and he's a lecturer at the American University of Afghanistan in Kabul. He'd been teaching a course in transitional justice, ironically about how power changes hands between governments. And prior to the collapse, he'd been talking to his students about what was happening and what they do in this scenario. And almost overnight, things shifted. Everything that they'd been studying was happening right in front of them. Uh, discussions that we would have of probably being able to sustain the republic or the system and so on and so forth eventually ended up becoming very meaningless until a day when I had to message all of them saying, I hope every one of you is safe and if anyone needs refuge or anyone needs help, I'm here. When classes resumed weeks later, 70% of his students had left and moved abroad, the reverse of the decision Obedullah had made three years ago when he'd packed up his life in Australia and decided to move back to Afghanistan. I'd grown up in exile, so there was always that uh, emptiness that had to be filled by being back. And I always thought that I, I'd been very lucky with a lot of things and I'd been privileged, and that privilege incurred responsibility, and the responsibility was towards my people. Obedullah actually has family connections to the Taliban. His grandfather is a former Mujahideen leader and prime minister of Afghanistan from the 90s, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. This makes Obedullah's relationship with his family pretty complicated but it also gives him more leeway to speak freely against the Taliban. And he's a frequent commentator on Afghan affairs and the foreign press. So he's well-connected and he also could have left this time. A lot of international outlets actually were very kind to be really worried for my safety because they'd interviewed me and they knew how outspoken I was. And I was sent letters by them to get me evacuated, but I'd refused. I, I did not want to leave them. So what is life like there right now? And how have things changed since the fall of the government? I have friends who used to work for the UN. They used to make pretty decent salaries. And they showed up at my house. Uh, and when I asked how they were leaving because I couldn't see their car, they eventually told me that they couldn't afford the fuel for their car anymore. My staff tell me that the salaries I was giving them, despite being enough before, wasn't enough now. And they were literally buying cold bread from the bakery at night for one or two Afghanis cheaper to eat for the next few days. People can't access their savings. People don't have jobs. Uh, commodity prices are increasing. I mean, the price of flour has doubled. 
if you look at the lines for the world food program distribution programs and they're just growing in size and that needs mm. to tell us something now, according to the latest world food program report three out of four households are in fact using extreme coping mechanisms such as skipping meals to stock up on food a lot of families in afghanistan were surviving because they had somehow or the other gotten one family member abroad and they would then send money back home and for the first few months it was close to impossible to get that money to afghanistan then there were people who were just barely surviving on their month to month salaries and the biggest employer was the government and there was no government anymore and once you lose your job you lose access to the bank you just it's very difficult in in our part of the world to survive because it's not like you have anyone to fall back on since the taliban takeover obedullah's thrown himself into advocacy work writing as much as he can taking every speaking opportunity he's offered to bring attention to the plight of regular afghans he's also started a food aid program So when I was in Afghanistan initially I started small food drives during the month of Ramadan so that sort of helped me establish a decent enough team that I could trust with the money and the work and it started with just a few thousand dollars and it's just grown exponentially we've almost distributed help for over I think 100k uh, uh dollars and we've helped more than 1000 families with just monthly food packages across different provinces in Afghanistan and every every one of them is a story in themselves like if we just sit down and write down their story and Afghanistan is a continuous series of heartbreaking stories yeah. these stories reveal the lengths that some people have gone to to get by we're seeing credible reports of people selling their children into marriage selling their kidneys just as a way to make enough money to survive that desperation is something shelly thackrell is seeing firsthand on the ground shelly's an aid worker with the united nations world food program which is distributing food rations throughout afghanistan um i've i've met women in markets in mazar sharif who have sold household items utensils cooking pots uh world possessions some jewelry um in very extreme cases you hear stories as well from unicef uh, of children being sold into into early marriage it's the case now where we're seeing 95% of people who are not able to eat enough food they don't have enough food to eat there's no vegetables there's no protein there's no fresh fruit we're seeing children who are on the verge of starvation very emaciated very weak children who one baby today she oh my goodness heartbreaking heartbreaking she apparently she was 7 months old but she she could fit into both the palms of your hand tiniest little baby and she was suffering from severe acute malnutrition farmers who have told me that i've lived through 19 governments and you tell them well at least there's some sort of peace now and he said well not really i mean you know war 
is better than being hungry. Being hungry is a terrible, terrible place to be. And nobody, nobody should be hungry in this world. Nobody should be hungry in 2022. People who are overly concerned with their next meal or basic survival cannot even think about larger questions. If the international community wants Afghans to fight for their rights, they can't do so on an empty belly. You mm -hmm. cannot cut off our oxygen supply and then give us CPR because you're the ones killing us, right? So this yeah. isn't a natural crisis. This is a man-made crisis. This is a crisis of politics. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So Afghanistan, of course, has a long and complicated history of war and foreign intervention. Most recently, when you think about what's causing this crisis, there are the U.S.'s sanctions on the Taliban, which have effectively cut the country off from international financial institutions and aid, and the U.S.'s refusal to release the assets of the Afghan Central Bank, both of which we're going to get into in just a bit. But Obedullah thinks in order to understand how we got here, we should actually go back even further. I think we need to take a step back and see this in, in the larger uh, picture. And, and the idea is Afghanistan wasn't doing well to begin with. Afghanistan was an extremely aid-dependent economy. Almost 70% of our economy was functioning due to aid. So it was just built for failure. And then when the Taliban came and the aid got cut off, sanctions got imposed. It meant that our whole health sector that used to function due to $600 million given to it by the World Bank had nothing to go by. So yeah, just all of that put together and then you just choke uh, the whole Afghan economy by cutting off its federal reserves. I mean, seven point something billion that is in parked in New York, uh, in the US reserves. Uh, banks, they refuse to release that money. I feel like this is something that most people have heard about, but don't really understand how that actually works and how it impacts people on the ground. And I wonder if you can just zoom in a little bit and explain that for us and draw that link between those policy decisions and how people on the ground are affected. The sanctions mean that a lot of organizations around the world that are trying to help in Afghanistan can't move the money, can't uh, really do serious development work because their countries are going to crack down on them. The Federal Reserve's freeze with the sanctions means that we have to really be creative about getting our money into Afghanistan. So when people donate and we collect this, these funds in, on crowdfunding websites, we have to eventually use the Hawala system. The Hawala system is an informal way of moving money that's done through people, known as Hawala dealers, not banks. 
There are rarely official records of transactions. Most of it is off the books, and the dealers settle the debt amongst themselves, which is why Obeidullah calls it a gray economy. I, I can try and send money on Western Union, but there are just so many restrictions. You can barely send whatever amount you send. A, the number of transactions that go to the country have to be limited. B, you have to share a lot of ID and information when you're sending that money. And C, when you're picking up that money, there's a limitation on how much cash you can take out. That means there's no point if I send $10,000 worth of aid and I can barely get a few hundred every week. How is that going to help me do the work that I'm doing, right? So all of these things put together um, just just creates more and more problems. The U.S. is using sanctions as a way to put pressure on the Taliban into meeting certain demands. So what do you say to people who make that argument, who say that this is a tactic and this is how you deal with a terrorist group? But look, I think one of the problems is even with this rhetoric of a terrorist group, I mean, why does the United States sit down and sign a peace deal with a terrorist group, right? you lost that higher ground of labeling the Taliban as a terrorist group. When you delegitimize the Afghan Republic by ignoring them and sitting with the Taliban directly. When have sanctions worked? How much of the sanctions did you put on Iran? Uh, did it affect the state that you were trying to sanction? No, it just made the population suffer. You put the worst sanctions in history on Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Did it make Saddam's lifestyle change a bit? No, it didn't. It just made common Iraqis suffer, right? And so on and so forth. So the Taliban leadership aren't going to feel the pain. There's always going to be enough taxes, customs, um, uh, minerals being sold, which is not enough for the common people that are surviving on day-to-day -day basis. For months now, Obeidullah has been pushing for the U.S. to lift its sanctions. But... There are also the $7 billion that belonged to the Afghan Central Bank that's being held at the Federal Reserve in New York. This was basically a rainy day fund for the Afghan people that the former Afghan government had parked in the U.S. But since the Taliban took power, those assets have been frozen. The U.S. doesn't recognize them as a legitimate government and argues that the Taliban have no claim to that money. Obeidullah and many organizations have also been calling for the U.S. to release those funds, saying they're crucial for rebuilding the Afghan economy and avoiding a humanitarian disaster. This money belongs to the Afghan people. This money, right. we are not asking them to grab all of this cash and hand it over to the Taliban when we say release Afghan money. Put conditions of abiding by certain international norms uh, use Afghan civil society to let this money back into this, uh, to the economy. But last week, we saw the latest turn in this story. The Biden administration announced that instead of releasing this money, they'd keep half of it frozen and use it to pay families of the victims of 9-11 who've made claims against the Taliban. Those claims are currently making their way through the courts. 
The other half would be moved into a trust fund to be used for humanitarian aid for the Afghan people. And it's still up in the air how that aid money would be distributed. And it'll probably be months before we know whether the claims of the families of 9-11 victims are successful. But Biden has signed an executive order to start that process. What was your reaction when you first heard this? And how are people in Afghanistan feeling about this news? I mean, we already have trouble uh, with the world waking up to our reality every day. And then you would expect the United States uh, having some sort of moral obligation and feeling some sort of responsibility towards Afghanistan. And when you see the president of the United States kneeling the final uh, nail into Afghanistan's banking sector's coffin, uh, it just it just makes you feel so so betrayed, so hopeless of the world. They know exactly the situation Afghanistan is in. So they decide to turn towards the country that has been labeled by some as hell on earth and choose to rob it of its money. It's theft. That's what it is. The news has obviously struck a nerve in Afghanistan. The Taliban had declared Tuesday a holiday, and hundreds came out to protest the U.S.'s move, with a lot of people demanding that the U.S. compensate tens of thousands of Afghans killed in the last two decades of war. People we talked to on the streets of Kabul were outraged, calling on the U.N. to intervene. Some were carrying signs calling Biden a thief. The executive director of the Afghan Investor Chamber was there. He called the order cruel and a betrayal of the Afghan people. Here's Amin Jan Kosti, the head of a union of money exchangers in Kabul. You is known that the Afghan people were not involved in 9-11 attack. And you is clearly known that who was involved. But this is also clear the Afghan nation was not behind the attack. This money is belong to the Afghanistan nation, not U.S. citizens who lost their life during the 9-11 attack. I've heard a lot of people describe this as a straight-up robbery of the Afghan people, and I can hear the pain in your voice. How does this most recent development, um, how would it worsen the humanitarian crisis we're already seeing on the ground? Um, look, we'd been shouting this for, for weeks and months that the solution wasn't aid. Um, so it's, it's, it's not the solution, it's, it's band-aids, it's short-term. And unless we can revive an Afghan economy, things will keep getting worse faster than aid can address. And 
Look, it's as simple as this. You can have people walk up and collect aid uh, every month, and that can get them by uh, through the day. But there is a very specific uh, ceiling that they will never cross with regards to their standard of living, right? Um, so unless there is a proper economy, which means unless this person has a job to go to, unless they can earn money, um, and unless they can start reinvesting in people and businesses grow because for the economy as a whole to grow, you need to have roads, you need to have hospitals, you need to have schools, universities, but then uh, the, there's a cycle of poverty, right? And aid never can get you out of that vicious cycle. Once you've fallen into it, you're poor, so you can't afford good education, your children are then poor, and then they can't afford anything good in life, and then their children, so they're stuck in this vicious cycle. And you've pushed the Afghan population. I mean, the, the, the numbers say 97% of Afghanistan's population will be in absolute poverty. That is crazy to imagine in today's modern world, right? It would take at least one or two generations to get out of where we are right now. But it can get worse, or we can try to stop it and change it now. And it's up to us. Right. What responsibility do the Taliban have in fixing this current crisis? What should they be doing? The Taliban are equally to blame. And I really don't appreciate the current card being played by the Taliban saying, oh, the U.S. is, is making Afghans suffer I mean, they're equally responsible had they played their cards right, had they not banned girls from going to school, had they not pushed their political opponents, had they not started cracking down on political dissent and making women disappear, we wouldn't be in the current tensions that we are in with the West. So there's quite a bit of responsibility on the Taliban end as well. Now, millions of Afghans are caught in the middle of this conflict, at the mercy of the U.S. and the Taliban. A very good analogy of the situation is that the Taliban and the United States are in a staring competition. So unless they engage, unless a compromise is negotiated, uh, and that starts with dialogue, that starts with engagement. I mean, one thing that I keep saying is I think the international community's strategy is to ignore the Taliban into oblivion. And that doesn't really work. Right. It never has worked. There is no quick fix coming. But everywhere you look, there are people trying to make the best of an incredibly difficult situation. Like Masood, the restaurant worker in Kabul, who you met earlier. Our future is also destroyed. I told you, I am standing here and asking people to take some lunch. And Abedullah. I mean, there's still hope in Afghanistan. There's still people in there. There's still civil society. There's still so much that can be done. But it can only be done when the international community is pushing the Taliban and, and engaging. The coming months and the way that the U.S. and the international community decide to handle this are going to be crucial for the Afghan people. But right now, it's all uncertainty. Very often my friends look at me and see me lost in thought, and it's just because no moment is silent uh, <laughs> in our heads, and you're constantly thinking about what to do next. One of the ways Obedullah tries to settle his mind 
is by writing poetry. He jots his poems down on his phone, trying to process the enormity of what's in front of him and the suffering of millions in his home country. We'll leave you with this poem he wrote. I shut my eyes and travel to my country in the upside down, the sirens wailing on the ambulance rushing to bring news of life, a boy telling his mother he has had enough to eat. The girls are up late choosing hairbands for the next school day. The music, laughter and dance grow dimmer as I grasp for this fleeting dream that never stays. And that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. And our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Our fixer on the ground in Kabul this week was Mohammed Shoab Abdul Basir. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer. Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. And our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you're a fan of Nothing is Foreign, we would love it if you could leave us a review or rating wherever you're listening to this. These make a big difference in helping new listeners find the show, and we really, really appreciate it. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.